book of Hebrews, chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Well, maybe you knew this. I did not know this uh, just a little while ago, but everyone these days seems to be talking about aliens. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this on our church podcast, which you didn't know we had a church podcast, but now after seeing that graphic, you don't want anything to do with that church podcast. But uh, we have a church podcast. We answer some questions on there, and we've actually in the last six months had two different questions uh, about aliens. And basically the idea behind it has been something like this. If aliens are real, what does that say about Jesus? Or what does that say about our, our faith. And basically the thought is, I think, behind these questions has been, you know, if there's life on other planets, right? Like we kind of get the idea that, you know, Christians believe God made this planet and that Jesus died for the world. But if there's life on other planets, isn't it a little silly to think that one man born 2,000 years ago in a small part on one planet is the savior of Every planet? See, see, this is the question everyone's coming to. And if you think this is a dumb conversation to be having, hi, my name is Nathan. All I got is dumb. Okay, so this is how this does. But here's why I think this is particularly interesting. I think it actually brings up something that is unique about our faith uh, that most of us, and I'll say especially if you grew up in church, you probably gave almost zero thought to and it's what theologians refer to as the scandal of particularity. All right, And this is basically how it goes. The scandal is that we worship an all-powerful, infinite God of the universe. Always existed, all-powerful, all-knowing. Right, And in particular, what Christians believe is that God does not just make himself uh, to show up in every culture, in every nation, and every period of time uh, it, to reveal himself in particular to every person. Nor do we believe that God just dropped a book out of the heavens that revealed everything he wanted people to know, right? There are many religions that just believe, hey, there's this book, that's all you need to know, and that's all you get. We believe that the all-powerful, infinite God of the universe chose to become a particular person. And here's what becomes even more scandalous than that. Last week, we talked about the idea that God himself has no gender, right? But God chose to show up not just as a particular person, but a man in particular, right? And not just a particular man. That means he had a particular name. He had a particular face. He had a particular ethnicity. He spoke a particular language. He came to a particular place at a particular time, and then he died a particular death at the hands of a particular government. And the way that we believe that you have a relationship with the all-powerful, once again, outside space and time, all-powerful, 
infinite God of the universe is not just to believe something about God. It is to believe something about this particular man who lived 2,000 years ago. It is to believe that somehow in his life, his death, and his resurrection, that life with the all-powerful infinite God of the universe became available to all people. And it is only through this particular man who lived at a particular time and place that life with God is available. And in the modern world, with the internet that we have, and with this feeling that, man, there's just infinite knowledge out there available to you, which means there's infinite possibilities out there, and it seems like everyone in every TV show and movie wants to talk about the multiverse, and there's all these different versions of you that could exist. Isn't it a little limiting? This is what the scandal is. Isn't it a little limiting to think that the all-powerful God of the universe would just chose to show up at one time in a language that none of us speak? Isn't that a little strange? It feels a little closed-minded. feels a little culturally insensitive to think that the exclusive truth about the God of the universe can be seen in a Jewish Messiah who lived 2,000 years ago. And if that's how you feel, you understand the scandal. That's the way that it works. See, in our world, truth often feels personal, right? That's my truth. That's what works for me. Truth is something that is cultural, maybe, right? That, that what works for me may not work for you. We all have our own version, kind of, of truth. But that's why we've been in this series about beliefs. We've been talking about what it means to be rooted in something more than just what works for you. Because, see, most of us do not spend a, li- a lot of time thinking about our beliefs. We don't even know it's a belief. You believe, if you're a follower of Jesus, all the things I just said about the particularity of Jesus you had probably never thought about in your entire life. You believe it, but you never really thought, man, that is a little strange. Because as long as it works for us, we don't think a lot about it, right? We said from the beginning of the series, we want a life that works, right? You want a marriage that works. You want a career that works for us. I was told when I was little that you didn't even have real money until you didn't have to work for your money. You could get your money out there working for you. Right? We want our money to work for us. We want our career to work for us. We want our marriage to work for us. And as long as everything's working and clicking, we don't even care why it works. That's until life stops working. When your marriage stops working, or the job that was the purpose of your life is suddenly gone, or until your health turns against you, or your mental health turns against you, it's in those moments you start asking the why question. Why me? Why is this happening? Why is this going this way? And in those moments, you need to be rooted in something that is bigger than just what was working, because it ain't working. So we've been looking at this early Christian statement of belief called the Nicene Creed, uh, because once again, faith is one of those things in our culture we think of as being very personal. We were even taught it's your personal faith. It's this idea that, you know, this works for you, and that's your truth, and as long as, you know, it's your system of what's going to happen in your afterlife, or your system of morality, or your philosophy of life, then that's just yours, and you can keep it to yourself. But see, what we believe is that our faith is this ancient stream of belief that roots us in the life, death, and resurrection of a particular person, and a historical event. We root our stories 
in our lives in the life of Jesus Christ. It is not something we get to make up for ourselves what works for us. It is something we receive, and we either accept it or we reject it. And it keeps us rooted in what really matters when life stops working. So this morning, I want us to read this ancient statement of belief that we have, and this part in particular, uh, I'm not going to have you read the whole Nicene Creed, but just the part that's about Jesus. And believe it or not, it's the lengthiest part of the creed because we're Jesus people, all right? So we're going to read a lot of this. Uh, so let's read this together. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. We ain't done. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, first, I want to mention that you can see right here this entire statement about his death, his resurrection, his ascension. It is rooted in a historical moment, under a historical rule. It is a particular kind of thing. The second thing I want to say is I know many of you are really hoping that what I'm going to do is go statement by statement, line by line through this thing and explain it all because there's some juicy stuff in there. The word consubstantial's in there. Begotten, incarnate. Are we ready? No, I'm not going to do that because I ain't smart enough for that, okay? Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a big picture overview of what this says. We believe, and I don't think any of this is going to be very shocking even if you don't believe what we believe. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. By saying that, we're not saying he is some kind of a lesser God or is he some kind of a created being. We believe, and this is that word consubstantial, it means of the same substance. We believe God the Father and Jesus are equal. They are of the same being. He is the exact representation of God. He is the true God. Through him all things were made. And in order to be our salvation, this is what we just sang about in the last song, right? He didn't want heaven without us, so he brought heaven down, right? He chose to become born of the Virgin Mary, which brings a whole bunch of other questions that you got. Not smart enough for it, okay? And so this is what we believe. Jesus was fully God, fully man. Same substance as God, same substance as human being. Born of a woman. For our sake, he was crucified, meaning he died a death. He was dead and buried and rose again. And not as some kind of metaphor, not as some kind of spiritual reality, a bodily, physical, real resurrection. Next week, Ed's going to talk more about the resurrection and the ascension to heaven. But see, here's the truth. Now, you may not believe all of what I just said there, but I don't think there's really much shocking in this. Even if you don't believe what we believe, it's not shocking to you that Christians believe Jesus is the Son of God, that he was born of a virgin, 
that he was crucified, he died on a cross, and rose to new life, right? Even if you don't believe all we do, none of that feels new or shocking. I think the most difficult part of this statement is the very first part. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. Christ is a Greek word that means Messiah. Christ is not Jesus' last name. He is not Mr. Christ, okay? Christ is the Greek transliteration of the word Messiah, which is a Hebrew word that refers to Jesus as being, one, the anointed king of Israel. It begins with a particular group of people. Jesus is the fulfillment of what God was doing with the people of Israel through that point in history and time. He is their Messiah, right? And he is both Messiah and king of the world. He is both the Messiah of Israel and the king of kings. He's both particular and universal, right? It's both things at once. And see, I think in our culture, everyone's kind of okay with you believing that Jesus is your Savior. They may think you're dumb for believing that or dumb for having faith. They're okay with you thinking Jesus is your Savior because for most of us, we were taught Jesus being your Savior had to do with your afterlife. It was about you having some guilt and you wanted to get rid of those, and so Jesus forgives you of your sin, and then you can go to heaven when you die. Everyone's kind of okay with you believe whatever you want because they're like, what, what am I going to know once, you, once it's all done? The bigger problem is, what do, how do we actually take seriously being, Jesus being Lord? What does it actually mean that Jesus is king? Is this some kind of political statement? Is the goal to make a Christian nation take over the government, pass laws based on our beliefs? Is it that? Or is it just some kind of spiritual metaphor that doesn't really mean anything? It's just trying to say Jesus is important. It's like when a 14-year-old says to his girlfriend, right, you're my whole world, and then they break up two weeks later. It's nonsense. It doesn't mean anything. We say Jesus is king just as a way of saying, like, you really, really, really matter to me, Jesus. Is that what it means? What is it actually, what effect does Jesus being king have on your day-to-day -day life, especially when life stops? And why does it matter if we believe any? of this. So is Jesus is King a political statement? Of course it is, but not in the way most of us think. Not in the political party, power seeking, take back our country for Jesus kind of way, but in the I belong to another kind of kingdom way, in the way Harriet Tubman understood. Living in a particular time and place, the pre-Civil War American South, Harriet Tubman knew what her state government said was right and true about the dignity and worth of enslaved people, but her allegiance was to King Jesus. And so even though the law of the land declared that all escaped slaves must be returned to their masters, Harriet Tubman knew what her king said was the truth and the way. So through the Underground Railroad, she was able to bring many people to freedom in the name of Jesus. The belief that Jesus is king also motivated Maximilian Kolb, a Polish priest living under Nazi occupation. He knew the penalty for harboring Jewish citizens, but in the name of his king, Kolb provided shelter for at least 2,000 Jewish refugees in his friary. Kolb was sentenced to spend his last days in the Auschwitz concentration camp, but is quoted as having said, these Nazis will not kill our souls, since we prisoners certainly distinguish ourselves quite definitely from our tormentors, they will not be able to deprive us of the dignity of our Catholic belief. We will not give up, and when we die, then we will die pure and peaceful, resigned to God in our hearts. It was his belief in Christ as King that directed his decisions. 
but it's not simply a statement of allegiance. It directs how we choose every decision. For the surviving members of the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church mass shooting by a white supremacist in 2015, it meant their response was clear. Within 48 hours of losing family members and loved ones to immeasurable hatred and horror, they stood on the courthouse steps and declared to the shooter, as one daughter did, you took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never ever hold her again. But I forgive you and I have mercy on your soul. Mercy and forgiveness like that are beautiful, but in the moment they feel irrational and even foolish. But these believers know how their king instructed them to respond. But it's not just these grand extravagant moments where it matters what you believe about Jesus. It's in the small moments of our lives as well. It's the believer who chooses to continue to stay and to work at a marriage when that marriage is no longer working for them because their king has called them to be faithful. It's the believer who refuses to indulge in a culture that says more, 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 and instead lives simply so that they can give and expect nothing in return as their king has called them to do. It's the believer who gives of their time and their energy and their money to take care of those in need because their king said, what you do for the least of these, you have done for me. It's the believer who works for reconciliation in a relationship that's been torn to shreds. It's the believer who chooses not to live by what their nation or their culture or their own desires tell them is normal and right or good and pleasing, but instead chooses to submit themselves to the authority and will of their king. And see, this is where our beliefs matter, because this is a matter of who has authority in your life. Most of us live in a way where we are the authority, and we might choose forgiveness or generosity or to be kind to someone I don't like if it makes my life better. But what about when staying in my difficult marriage feels like it's costing me more than I'm gaining? Or what if being generous keeps me from the lifestyle I really want to live? What if choosing Jesus's view of morality causes me to miss out on the way other people live? In those moments, that's when who gets to have authority matters. Because if I have the authority, then I get to choose. But if I truly believe that Jesus is King and that through his death and resurrection, he has proved himself worthy of all power and authority, then if I wanna live in his kingdom, I don't get to argue with him because Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus didn't reveal one truth out of many or show us the best way to do life out of many options. Jesus is the only way to the only life that is truly meaningful and never ending. And I can only experience this life if I give up my way to follow his way. So this is where we need to pause because this is the whole thing. Jesus is Lord. So before we move on, we need to give a moment for God to speak to us individually. Often God uses the gathering of his people and the teaching of his word to wake us up I mean, to get our attention to something that we've heard or we've known, but we've just sort of ignored or made it not as important as it is. Maybe it's a situation, maybe it's something in your life, maybe it's something you've felt before, but 
You know God's calling you to pursue something and you just you just aren't you you just don't want to. I mean that's just flat out the truth. You just don't want to do it. Maybe for you what I just described to you it's all new. And you don't even believe what we believe and maybe God simply wants you to wake up to the reality of his presence. I've said it once already. God is in fact here. But he's everywhere you are and we don't have to invite him into our presence. We just need to wake up to the fact he is always with us. And he wants you to know that he is real and that he is with you. One thing I am absolutely confident of is God wants everyone in this room to draw close to him and be aware of how great his love is for them. So what we're going to do now is we're going to give some time in quiet for God to speak to us individually. Often when we give quiet, almost all of us feel the need to speak. We, we take the opportunity to pray. I'm asking you to listen instead. To make space that God, the God of the universe, might have something more important than what you want to say to him that he might want to say something to you. So would you, if you're comfortable, just get to a place where you're able to be comfortable and then close your eyes. Would you close your eyes? And the only line I would like for you to say to God in this quiet when I stop speaking is something like, God, would you speak to me? And would you draw me close? Now let's just listen. Heavenly Father, help each of us to be open. Not just now, but would you help us to remain open to what you might want to say to us. Either what we know that you've already talked to us about or what you might have to say to us in the next few moments. We're your servants. We came here to worship you and follow you wherever you lead. Help us to do so. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So in the book of Hebrews, uh, in your Bible, the whole point of this little book in the Bible is to point out that Jesus is greater than all other things. He has proven himself worthy to be the king of all kings, that he has all power and authority. 
And the opening of this, which some people think is a letter, but most of the scholars I read these days tend to think this is actually a sermon that was written down, and it's by an unknown author. But the writer is making this kind of royal announcement. But not only is Jesus being king, but is Jesus being God himself. The writer says, the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being where we get the idea that Jesus is consubstantial, the same substance. He is the exact same as God the Father, right? But Jesus is not just how we know what God is like. He is also sustaining all things by his powerful word. What this means is that Jesus is at the center of all things, holding all of existence together. Now, I know a lot of this might have just seemed like intellectual nonsense up to this point and you might have zoned out but I hope you'll lean back in because this is the part where this actually really matters for your life Jesus is the center of all things which means he is the purpose of life itself and here's why that matters most of us think that we were supposed to be the center of our lives now I don't mean that in the kind of like narcissistic way that most of us kind of say when you're in an argument you say you just think you're the center of everything I mean, we thought we were supposed to be the ultimate authority for our lives. I'm supposed to choose what is right or wrong for me, and I figure it out. But we've already talked about the idea that Jesus has all power and all authority. And so we're not just talking about how this plays out in our decisions. This is a problem for how you experience life. See, most of us feel this immense amount of pressure that we are the ones who are supposed to be holding our lives together. That I'm the one who determines how good and pleasing my life is. Which is why when things are going really bad, the way we say it to one another is, I just feel like I can't hold it together. I feel like everything's falling apart. I can't hold my life together. I can't hold this marriage together. I can't hold these kids together. It's all just falling apart. And what we think is, it's my job to somehow control my circumstances or plan ahead for my circumstances or try and control what other people think of me or maybe if I could somehow manipulate and control what they do, if I could get the kind of power and authority over them to tell them what to do, then my life could actually be good and pleasing. And so what we think is we think, well, you got to work hard enough. you got to make enough money, or you got to pick the right career, or have the right marriage, and have the right kids. And many of us are plan-ahead kind of people. And you think, if I just plan it all out, and I foresee all possibilities, and I can plan everything ahead, I can make sure I can hold everything together until a pandemic happens, which you had no control over. Or until you're married to someone, and they have a different plan that don't line up with you. Or you work for someone and they've got a different plan than you've got. And then all of a sudden you feel like you can't hold anything together. If you're like me, you do not do a good job of holding it all together. Or you did and then something you did not plan for happened and suddenly life stopped working. And in those moments you feel overwhelmed and discouraged or anxious and depressed and hopeless. Because when things fall apart, you don't even know how you could begin to pick up the pieces again. But here is the good news. 
you are not the center of your life. And you were not meant to hold it all together. Because you can't. But Jesus can. If you'll let him. The writer of Hebrews says that after Jesus had provided purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Why is this important? It's because sin is what makes your life stop working. Now, not just your sin. Your sin does, but you can figure that out pretty quick. You've, you've seen your own sin blow everything up, and you've seen someone else's sin blow everything up for you. But there also seems to be just this cosmic brokenness to everything. There just seems to be this way that things are disordered and chaotic and wanting to break down in life. And for all of that, Jesus said, I will be the purification. Jesus, the one who had no sin, never gave in to sin, never contributed to the chaos and disorder in the world, the evil and the brokenness in the world, chose in his death to become almost like a sin magnet. It was like all of the chaos, all of the brokenness, all of the evil, injustice, sin in our world latched itself onto Jesus on the cross and then as the scriptures say, in his body, he put sin and evil and death to death. He defeated it once and for all. And when he rose to new life, he made a new kind of life, a new kind of world available to anybody who wants it. And as the writer of Hebrews says, he sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven. Now, we miss this because this is not our kind of language around this, but the idea of a king sitting on his throne, that only happens once a king has already gone off and fought the battle that needed to be fought. He had done the work in the project that he had set out to accomplish, which is why Jesus on the cross says, it's finished. The work he had set out to accomplish, it's finished. The battle has been won. Now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father like a king ready to enjoy and rule and manage his kingdom. And he invites you and I into this kind of kingdom. The author of Hebrews is saying Jesus is not only your Savior, He's not only provided purification for your sins, He has invited you to let Him be the King with all power and authority in your life, which means life in His kingdom, which is unshakable, in case you didn't know. In case you didn't know, life in God's kingdom is not threatened by who wins the next election. Life in his kingdom is not threatened by what happens to the economy or even what's going to happen in your marriage or this circumstance you're terrified of. Life in his kingdom is not threatened by it. And he says, you can come and live in my kingdom because the work is finished. The king is now ruling and reigning in session. And this is why the scandal of particularity that we talked about at the beginning it matters because something has decisively happened in history to prove that God is king. That the creator of all things, Jesus Christ, who holds all things together, is ruling as the king of the universe. But he's not only, Jason talked to us last week about this, he's not only big enough and powerful enough to hold all existence together in his hands, he's also small enough to become a human at a particular time and place. He also can become small enough to become a group of cells in the womb of an unwed teenage mother. Imagine that. 
that he would become small enough, personal enough. How vulnerable is a child? God of the universe becoming small enough, vulnerable enough to be cared for by his creation. And he is personal enough to notice you, and to love you, and to choose you. He is holding all existence together. and He cares about the particulars of your life. When I was a child, my dad would often tuck us into bed. He would come into my room and he'd say, Nathan, you know, if I could line up all the little boys in all the world, and God would let me pick any of them to be my little boy, every time I choose. Every time I would choose you. You can imagine the kind of confidence, the kind of security, the kind of meaning that not only do you love me, but you've chosen me. You want me. Many of you have longed to hear a parent say that. Especially if you're my two other brothers, because he didn't say it to them. Um, <laughs> they're finding out about it today. Um <laughs> uh, this is what the God of the universe, he says to you on the cross. He says all the evil that you see in the world, all the injustice you worry about, all the brokenness in the world, I'm holding that all together. But I'm not just worried about the cosmic universe, I'm worried about you, and I love you, and I choose you. And I see every tear you cry. And I see every sin that you've ever done. And still, I choose you. And here's what's even more. He allows us to choose him. Even though Jesus is king, his kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. I don't know if you know this. The only way a kingdom can advance in our world is through force. There is no nation that just goes, oh, you'd like to be king over our nation? Fine, we'll just let you go. Come on in. It takes armies. It takes war. It takes force. Not so in the kingdom of God. There's a group of people who voluntarily surrender their kingdom. They surrender their way, the authority of their lives. Because when I had authority over my life, I was the one who was causing the sin and the chaos and the disorder that made my whole life fall apart. But when we give authority over to the king who already has all authority and we stop pretending like I have any authority anyway I find a life under his protection life where I don't have to work I don't have to strive, I don't have to earn to have a good life for myself because he's the one who's holding all things together anyway and he's the one who provides all I need for a good life see I only find this way of life when I choose his way over my way when I choose that his kingdom matters more than my little sandcastle of a kingdom. When I think his kingdom matters more than the kingdom of this nation, the kingdom of this world, the kingdoms of this culture that I live in, the kingdoms of the desires that are within me, that I want to be king, I must choose to follow Jesus as king. Now that does not mean that somehow this will make everything easy or enjoyable. I don't know if anyone's told you this. A good life is not always an enjoyable. Things can be good and not enjoyable. But when you choose to surrender, it'll be a sign that you've chosen Jesus as king. On August 14, 1941, sirens rang out at Auschwitz concentration camp where Maximilian Kolbe had been sentenced. He was in prison. The night before, a fellow prisoner 
had escaped the camp, and that morning the Nazis had just selected at random 10 other prisoners that would be killed as a show of force in reprisal to warn off any future escape attempt. One of these 10 men just begins to cry and weep loudly. My wife, my children, I'm never going to see them again. So moved by the compassion of his king, immediately Colby stepped forward and asked, can I die in this man's place? And they granted his request. And as he and these other prisoners awaited their deaths, Colby led them in song, praise, and prayer. This is both a horrific story of the worst that human beings can do to one another. And at the same time, a beautiful glimpse at an otherworldly kind of love and sacrifice that this world is not worthy of. It's the ugliness of horror and sin and evil somehow being transformed from chaos and death into new life and something that is beautiful and eternally valuable. This is the Jesus way. It is the only way things work in his kingdom to sacrifice and to surrender and to give up the chaos and death and sin and evil of this world to allow it to be transformed into something beautiful and new. And I don't know what kind of chaos is in your life right now. I know my chaos. But I don't know what situations you face. I don't know what choice King Jesus has put before you to make. And maybe you're afraid not going to work. Remember, our life is not rooted in what works or what works for us. It is rooted in the life and the death and the resurrection of King Jesus. And though forgiveness feels like foolishness and though generosity feels like me and mine are going to miss out because I'm giving to someone else or maybe somehow serving feels like I'm going to get taken advantage of, we know this is the only path to life. We know because we've seen it in King Jesus. And that's why we're asking you, do not root your life in pursuing what works or what works for you, but instead choose to root your life in what is true. And the truth is Jesus Christ is king, and he is risen, and he is reigning, and he is asking you, will you choose me? And look, if you're not sure you believe all we do, I'm not asking you to trust me on this. The way we do it around here is we ask you, would you go to next step? Would you go out there and would you get to know some people around here who have chosen Jesus Christ as king and have chosen to surrender their way to his way and find out, is that working for them? And are they for real? And can I trust them? Because they will always point you to the king who has taken the chaos and disorder of their life and transformed it into something new. And new ain't always enjoyable. Try teaching a kid to ride a bike. But new is beautiful, and it is powerful. So would you consider going to the Next Steps Center, signing up for our one-hour Next Steps class? Just take a step towards investigating life with Jesus and his people. But right now, for all who believe, I want to invite you to take part in the meal of the King, what we call the Lord's Supper, the time we remember Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that made life in his kingdom possible the people who chose to rebel against him and to choose our sin and chaos over him. 
We use the symbols of bread and the cup to remember the body and blood of Jesus given for us. And you were handed these symbols as you came in the room today. And as we always say, if you don't want to participate in this, you're not sure you believe what we do or this is too uncomfortable, you don't need to, but you should know this is a time for those of us who have chosen Jesus as king, not only to honor him and thank him for his death, but it's almost like a little pledge of allegiance to King Jesus that you are our king and we will choose your way over ours. But before we receive this meal, I want to ask you to take a moment and just talk to God. Is there some area of your life where Jesus is not king? Has he brought something to your mind that he's calling you to do? Or maybe something that you did this week and you failed to follow him as king? You want to confess that? Take just a moment right now to pray and talk to Now, if you're ready to do so, would you simply just say to him, Jesus, I choose you in your way. Now, in honor of King Jesus, would you stand? We're going to receive this meal of the Lord's Supper together. So, if you would, you can go ahead on the bottom of the cup. You'll see the place for the bread. Go ahead and take that bread. This is the body of Jesus. It's been given for you to forgive your sins and offer you the gift of new life. Let's eat and remember. Now the cup. This is the blood of Christ poured out to make a new agreement between God and people. Life forever in his kingdom. Let's drink and remember. For when we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim... What we've already sang about this morning, Christ was crucified. Christ was raised to life, and he is surely coming back again. Amen.